Hey, NeuroCurious listeners, just a quick note. Um, our microphones and Laura's microphone did not play well together in today's episode. So rather than re-recording it, we decided just to use the audio gathered from her microphone, which results in a little bit of um, distance and echoiness. Um, but we hope you'll think it's worth putting up with it. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to NeuroCurious, a podcast about all things brain, body, mind, and culture, not necessarily in that order. I'm Deborah Budding, joined by co-hosts Jamie Jones and Peggy Schaefer, and today we are super lucky because we have Laura Flores Shaw with us, mm-hmm. aka Babs. Babsy. Babs is with us. Hello. And, um... So we're going to be talking about Montessori, and um, Laura is an uh, internationally renowned expert on Montessori education and uh, all-around gadfly and entertaining public speaker. We get to call her our friend. Um, so, so welcome, Laura. Who are you? I will. Gosh, you made me sound so important right there. <laughs> well, you are. I don't know that I can match that. Um, so you are. Who am I? I am a. Uh, I'm a Montessori parent. Actually, that's how I came to Montessori first as a parent. And I am a doctoral student uh, at Johns Hopkins University getting my doctorate in education. And with my specialization is mind, brain, and teaching. And I've also, I had the experience of running the Montessori school for seven years. The and, Oaknall. Yes. Oaknall. Yes. And um, my children started out there as students and then... Uh, a year within a year I was the head of school there and so worked on that for a long time and I write I speak I talk a lot yeah 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 that's why that's why we're friends yeah that is why we're friends (laughs) (laughs) we couldn't even be silent for two seconds no oh poor Bill I know so how shall we how shall we move on don't you have a question James no, I do. Oh, you do. No, I'm going. It's me. So tell us about Maria Montessori. Maria Montessori. So, um, well, she was actually uh, the first female physician in Italy, mm. uh, and she also studied anthropology. Um, she really took a, a, scienti- a scientific approach in developing her method and working with children um, in that she used systematic observation um, and, uh, she was asked to, uh, work with essentially the throwaway children of Rome, given her, her experience as a physician. And, you know, the, the government said, we need to do something with these children. And so she brought them into a school. And this was, these were kids who were living on yeah. the streets. Yeah. These right. were kids and who were living on the streets. were not, um... But they were basically seen as subhuman within that culture at that time. Exactly. It was sort of like, do something with them, tame them, do something. Mm-hmm. So, But she didn't necessarily have a full-fledged plan when she went in and started working with them. Mm-hmm. It was sort of interesting. So how did she develop her views on education and how to educate the children? So that really came about through her systematic observation of them. Um, and she started to she started to see that if you prepared an environment for them, that they would just 
do things on their own. Like, for instance, in the first Montessori classroom, the materials were actually locked up. Mm-hmm. And you could only, the children had to ask a teacher to get the materials. And then one day the lock broke. And the children just started, they walked into the classroom and started pulling materials out of the cabinet themselves and started working. And then she thought, why are they locked up? Maybe they don't need to be locked up. Maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, we just give them some choice. And I think she really started to understand the need for them to have agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it wasn't about the adults doing something to the children Uh to like tame them. Right, it was giving them space to allow them to develop their best selves. So that's sort of an interesting way to think about it in terms of adaptive function and development, and ways that an environment can then help support and scaffold right. development mm-hmm. versus sort of control or inhibit development. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that she thought about it consciously in those terms, but it seems to me that's really the nut of it. Yeah, well, she really, I mean, the and Montessorians talk all the time about the prepared environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that is a huge thing in a Montessori classroom. But even, but you can prepare your environment, you know, during the summer and your students will come in. Your students will then give you information about your prepared environment, whether or not things are working. So maybe you need to redesign the room. Maybe you need to move shelves around. Maybe you need, you know, you don't have a big enough reading space, quiet space, or something like that, right? And so teachers will adjust their environment accordingly. So what are sort of the current hallmarks of Montessori education? How is it different than, say, traditional education? Oh, my God. It's like, how much time is this? Do we have, like, five hours? Um, yeah, is it is a completely different framework than conventional education. So, so I'm talking about conventional education. It's not a – to me, it's not a – private public issue it's really a framework issue Mm -hmm, and so the framework when you think of school right everybody has a lens through which they see school and it's children sitting at desks that are you know they might be sitting at group tables but they're generally kind of sitting they're doing a lot of sitting (laughs) they're doing a lot of sitting and then they're they're getting a lot of input yeah. Uh, from it's a passive model essentially. It's a very passive right. model, and it was developed, you know, uh, really n- not by teachers, not by people who were actually working with children, but by superintendents who were responding to urban growth uh, and and a huge uh, increase in population. And it's an industrial model. It's an industrial it's model. Sort of like you know having a. I just I keep picturing Lucy and Ethel with the chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In the chocolate factory. Yes, uh-huh. but they were having way more fun. Yeah. I think sometimes, and you know, yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, and in fact, um, you know, common school at the time that people didn't necessarily want it. You know, this was in the mid nineteenth century, and so as a way to get people on board. Uh, school superintendents would talk about how, you know, we were taking these business practices from, uh, you know, because industrial if, corporations. If right? you ever want to make something better, you make it more corporate. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <Perfectly> I think. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, that brings up another issue, though. I'm going to sidetrack for just so, a minute here. Like, really? You do that? So, I know, right? So I'm going to squirrel everybody for, here for a second. But, you know, you we have, education is a really big business. Indeed. Absolutely. It's just, a, ask, just ask Eli Broad and Bill Gates. Right. Exactly. Uh-huh. Or um, Tom 
what's his name, Vander Ark, or, you know, like all of these people who uh, start these educational companies and technology is a big way to come in and assess. And everybody thinks it's like better. And then everybody cites Clay Christensen from, you know, Harvard, who's a businessman. And it's like, you know, actually education is about human development. And those business people don't know anything about human development. Well, this makes a fabulous segue, actually, into something that I want us to spend some time talking about is, I think, the sort of natural way that Montessori education incorporates a sensory motor development approach, mm-hmm. right? So if it's sort of the difference between looking at neurodevelopment as mind and body and brain development and, and how that unfolds in varying ways versus this very kind of top-down you know, shoving content mm-hmm. into somebody. Imposing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then so, assessing whether or not you know that yeah, content. Correct. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, could we spend a little bit of time talking about the sensory motor viewpoint that that guides Montessori? Because I know you and I have talked about this and we've written things together mm-hmm. about it. But yep. I think it would be really nice to hear like how you describe that unfolding and how Montessori, because Montessori starts very young. Oh, it's, it's a, it, it starts from birth mm-hmm. and goes all the way through high school. Uh, my kids want there to be a Montessori college. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't figured that out yet. But, um, but yes, it starts at, at birth, and, and it really is allowing for freedom of movement and, again, that agency. And so you know, we have these wonderful videos, for instance, of a child – feeding herself she's maybe eight months old and she's got a slab of cantaloupe and then she's given a chopper and she chops off a piece and then she eats it and you know it's it's like giving them opportunity to to uh, be a part of everything right and not just have everything done for them and then they're engaging in all this very complex movement and then as they um as they Develop they the the materials within the environment are training the senses and they're training movements uh, and they're all very very purposeful and they're all uh, they're they're doing direct training like explicitly or or it's implicit you know for instance uh, there's a table washing work for children who are three to six and there's there's like 17 steps or something. I probably don't have that number exactly right, but there's a huge amount of steps in the table washing activity, right? And so when children can remember all these steps, we get really excited that they're able to remember all those steps. It's sequencing. And then when they're washing the actual table, they're shown how to do particular movements. And the idea is that their their arm is being prepared for handwriting. handwriting. Right, right, exactly. And also there there are, are tools and manipulatives that also teach kids to hold pencil before they learn how to hold a pencil exactly right. yeah i mean there weren't um it's, it's my understanding that puzzles didn't have knobs on them until dr montessori oh interesting i did not know that and that really helps to develop that pincer grasp mm-hmm. and but you know she the materials that she used are based on the materials used by um the two french uh psychologists uh and i i'm terrible at french jean itard and uh, Edwin Seguin, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. And so they were the, 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 the scientists who work with the wild child, and they used all of these hands-on materials. And so Maria Montessori was completely fascinated by their work mm-hmm. and a, a, 
adapted or uh, adopted some of those materials into the environment and then more materials were created. And so for the math curriculum, for instance, I mean, these are concepts that, that really make these, these abstract ideas very concrete right. for the children um, really early on. Uh, so it's it's really amazing. But she understood, Maria Montessori really understood that there was this link between movement and cognition. Right. And you don't hear anybody talk about that, which I think is so interesting. I think I haven't found any other pedagogy that understands that link um, the way that Montessori understood it and created uh, an environment that, that really... Uh, allow the children to, you know, get that sensory motor training that they needed. Right. Well, this actually brings me to a, an issue that I've spoken about with disability advocates where they view Montessori as a pretty ableist educational model and that um, it's, it's considered um, to be so focused on neurotypical development that there's not room for kids with disabilities. Um, and so, you know, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that from your, you know, background to understand how, you know, is that something that people are aware of and how is Montessori actually able to make accommodations and to scaffold for kids with either physical or um, neurological disabilities and differences? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, but yeah. even before that, because one thing that I've noticed is a lot of programs that say Montessori on the door, mm-hmm. but aren't necessarily when you walk in true Montessori. Right. So I often wonder if part of that confusion is like, I don't know who gets to call themselves a Montessori. Right. So are there rules to who gets to call themselves a Montessori? Um, you know, so how much right. of that discussion is really that's not true Montessori, it's right. the school in your neighborhood that... Right. Well, and here in the United States, I mean, basically anybody can put a sign on the wall saying we're a Montessori yeah. school. And yeah. they can buy a few Montessori, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, tools, and then they're considered a Montessori school. Right. Right? Right, exactly. I mean, that's a problem. It's not a trademark term, so anybody can open up a Montessori school um, and call it Montessori. And it... You know, it's really hard because I think for parents, when you go in and observe, you can see some materials, you can think, okay, this looks like Montessori, but what you don't necessarily know is whether or not, the t- how much control the teacher ultimately has. Right. So, you know, even for instance, in an elementary environment, it could be the kind of control where the teacher is giving each child a checklist of work that they need to do that day, right? That's actually not something that you would do at a more, uh, you know, a school that's really trying to give, well, I, I don't want to use the word authentic because we kind of, you know, that's a complex right. word to use in this, in this I community. Mean, even but extra virgin olive oil apparently isn't. Oh my God. <laughs> isn't, right. I saw that 60 minute segment. Awesome. I've been devastated <laughs> since I saw that 60 minutes. I don't know segment. what I'm going to anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> but there are, you know, it's it, there, I think it's, um, it's really about a parent having to ask a lot of questions about when they go to visit a Montessori school. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so how do you, how do you get the children to do X, Y, Z um, is kind of a way to see. It, they may just respond, oh, we make them do da, 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 right? Then you know you're in the wrong place. <laughs> right. Right? I mean, it's, um, uh, how, you know, how do you guide them towards work that they're supposed to be doing? I mean, these are questions that, 
that parents need to ask. It's it's just the problem is with Montessori, honestly, is that it's just so complex. It's very complex. It's it's a very deep and rich and complex system. And it takes training. Yeah, I think, I think training. that's the issue. Yeah. And which is one of the things I think next episode we're going to be delving deeper into neurologic music therapy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and why having yeah. um, just saying, oh yeah, my kid does music therapy, right? You Correct. Know, we just yeah. grab a banjo and we're doing music therapy, right? right? right. So I, I think that with a really um, in in depth approach to a a mode of intervention. The, the quality of training quality in the people training. who provide it makes a lot of difference. And how do you how do you know that you're working with people who have the level of training and the level of understanding that's necessary? Right. Um, yeah. I, I would add in. Um, we. I'll just disclose that I observed Montessori recently, and it was. I know this sounds very ethereal, and I don't mean it in that way, but I, I had the pleasure of speaking to Laura before I went to have an idea of what to look for and kind of things to keep an eye out for. And the, the what I walked away from this experience was a feeling. It's a feeling in the room. I can't describe it, that there is utter control without no control, without yeah. any... You don't feel that there's an imposition on the child, and yet the child is doing exactly what they need to do. Right. It's, it's, it's a feeling of, I can't believe all these kids are engaging in their own way and the teacher is flowing around this room, which is another thing I wanted you to get to was the, the setup of the room itself mm-hmm. and the dynamic between how many children are in the room and how they manage that and their training in that because I think what I witnessed was really lovely to see. Um, but if you're not attuned to those things, you don't necessarily see it. Yeah. Well, that that, it will absolutely. So first of all, it's I, people would ask me when I was running the school, like, you know, why don't you do more open houses? And because walking parents through an environment without the children there, it doesn't, you know, they, they're not going to understand what's going on, especially if they've never seen a Montessori school, right? Everybody's looking at yep. school through the lens That's of conventional right. school, right? right? Yep. This is a total perception shift. Yep. And it takes a while for that per- perception shift to happen, you know? I feel like I'm still going through it in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, yep. even, even you know, now. Um, but if you, you, you know, you have to you have to observe with the children in the environment so that you can get that feeling that you're talking yeah. about. Because otherwise parents are going, wait a minute. So while you're giving a, a presentation or a lesson to a couple of children, right. what's everybody else doing? Uh-huh. Right. Well, they're all doing their own thing. And then people think, oh my gosh, what? That chaos. sounds like chaos. chaos. That's crazy. There's no structure. Nobody's listening. Right. It's exactly. not that way in, in an appropriate environment. It's not. it's not. And isn't it the feeling that you talked about? I know exactly. So I've observed at a lot in a lot of um, Montessori schools. And they're, you know, sometimes you walk into a classroom like, yeah, this is good. This is, this is really good. And then sometimes you walk into a classroom and like the angels sing mm-hmm. and you just get these chills and you want to start crying and you sit down and go, what is going on? And there's just, it's so amazing. And it's hard to exactly describe yeah, exactly what it is that you're seeing, except you'll see all of these three, four, five, six-year-olds just completely in control of themselves and engaged and engaged, engaged. And, sequ- and and they're not they're 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 sequencing through tasks 
with the help of each other as much as with the teacher. Absolutely. So that's where I wanted you to also speak about the mixed age. Yeah, the mixed component. age is so, so important. It's so important because if you have uh, children that are all the same age, you it has to be an adult-controlled environment. It just does. Yeah. So if you're in conventional education and you're saying, hey, we're doing child-centered learning and you don't have mixed age groups, I'm sorry, I don't know how you're doing child-centered learning. Mm-hmm. You have to control all the children. Right. So in in a mixed age environment, you have children who are leaders in the environment who've been there for at least three years and they know how how the environment works Mm -hmm. and they can give uh, lessons and presentations to the younger children. This also sends the message to the children that the adult is not the keeper of all of the information. You know, that they, and, 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 you know, a hallmark of being a self-regulated learner is that you go get help when necessary. That means you can get help from anybody. You can, you'll know that Jimmy is actually, you know, he's the expert on how to care for the fish in the environment. So I'm going to go talk to him because it's my week to care for the fish. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to, you know, it's like you, you, they start using those skills that as an adult you need to use, but they're using them at a really, really young age. Well, and what that ends up doing, I think, is developing, you know, we we talk about, and and certainly this has resonance for me given the current election cycle and um, citizenship, (sighs) right? Right. Yes, Yes. citizenship. This is the kind of thing that just from a very young age starts to encourage the idea of community and of citizenship mm-hmm. and of how do you conduct yourselves with other people. And and it also makes me think about, you know, Montessori is kind of pegged as a white upper middle class yeah. Oh, yeah. thing. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I'm sitting here thinking, I want it be, to be possible for underrepresented communities with limited financial resources to be able to have this kind of environment right. and have access to this kind of environment. Right. And how does that get to happen? I mean, wasn't there wasn't there a community that ended up getting public school funding for a Montessori school? Uh, well, we have, uh, I don't know what community you're thinking of offhand, think of but there's, there is, you know, what we have now, we have the National Center for Montessori in the public sector, which is great. Okay. But I want to, I want to go even further than that. Okay. Like, I mean, because you're, you're, bringing up a really important point. There have been projects around the world where Montessori is brought to children who are um, living in displacement camps, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, in Kenya. There's a there's a project called Corner of Hope, uh, and uh, AMI, which is the Association Montessori International. And that's kind of the quote-unquote real Montessori. Well, yeah, I mean... To, to the degree that there's an organization. It's the organization to... that Dr. Montessori started. Right. There's a lot of politics around that, and oh, I don't say. And, yeah, and I really you try to. There are people involved, and so I'm not going to touch it. Yeah, and, well, because <laughs> I, I don't, you know, where there are groups of people, there. There's are always politics. Drama. That's exactly Just right. Groups of drama. people, there's always politics. But, and I will say this: that you know, I, I just, I just want to point out that. Uh, you know, an AMI diploma as a Montessori teacher does not guarantee that you still get it. Right. And right. there are, PhD there are great, does not right, exactly, exactly. Right. Uh, you know, and there are fantastic, you know, AMS teachers, um, you know, all kinds of, there's, there are different um, 
different different trainings. There are different and, ways to get there. Um, yeah, and and ultimately, you know, are you thinking more about the technical aspect of Montessori, or are you thinking about really the essence right. of things? And that it re- that requires a lot of tremendous deep thought. So, but also, I think it should be taught from the bottom up. Like this is from yeah. from me from my yeah. perspective as a neuropsychologist. Yeah. Um, if I had been taught to think about human function mm-hmm. and human development from a sensory motor and evolutionary perspective from the beginning, mm-hmm. right? My my progress as a clinician would have been much cleaner, and it would have been better for the people I work with, rather mm-hmm. than my having to come to this understanding and rearrange my thinking much much later. Mm-hmm. Well, this right? is a, that's the problem that we have, I think, with. Um, with education, uh, with teaching teachers, yeah. uh, this is, and that's where Montessori really distinguishes itself because it really is, you know, with that sensory rich sensory motor environment, the teachers are really understanding that it's it's through that active engagement with the materials that the children are are really developing their self. They're not just learning, but they're actually sort of constructing their personalities. Right. Yeah. They're the constructing think, their, oh, yeah. thinking, you know, thinking comes through movement. Right? Yes. Right. Thinking happens because of, of movement. Right. So regardless of what culture you're you're from, right? So this yeah. I just want to get back to this the the corner of hope thing because it's truly incredible. So what they what uh, some trainers from AMI did is they went in and they trained um, some of the parents within the community uh, in this displacement camp who wanted to learn how to become teachers, and they make all of their own materials. Right. So it's, they it's make a bottom up. Approach it's a bottom from the community, from the community. As to going in like, oh, we are the white saviors, and oh, Ab- absolutely, you, you that's that's exactly right. That's not how change. That is not how change, and that that is <laughs> well, one it's thing. Colonial. It's, it's, exactly. It is gross. It is, it is gross. disgusting. But. And, well, and it doesn't have to be that way, no, right? It's interesting that the view of Montessori is it's sort of this white privileged school thing. When you think about where it started, I mean, yeah. Maria Montessori started working with throwaway children. Right. Right. So how did it go from this totally, you know, grassroots because we yeah, children to this notion of you know, it's this privilege, privileged and, and because they're independent not, schools, yeah. they're primarily independent schools. But I think um, actually the community you were thinking about. Of course, is it Minnesota, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Okay. Yes. Well, boy, that place I think is it's a uh, trash heap right now. I think it was it Wisconsin. I think it's Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, they would um, benefit from some uh-huh. so, access to uh-huh. public education. So we're trying to we're trying to. Th- there's a lot of work being done by a lot of really great people, like grassroots community. Absolutely. I mean, Kathleen Guinan has um, Crossways Community, which is on the East Coast, and that is that's a whole situation where. Um, uh, single moms who are in, you know, uh, not very good, you like know, life situations, yeah. you know, they are, they come in and they live in the Crossways community and their children attend the Montessori school put on by the, that the Crossways community has, you know, on campus. It's a beautiful campus and it's, you know, they had some other, um, you know, just daycare center kind of situation, it wasn't working. Montessori, they realized, wow, this is not only was this helping the children, but it was also helping the parents because right. it really helped yeah. the parents to see their children in a different way. And again, that's where the Montessori training, I think, is also very different than conventional teacher training because in conventional teacher training, it's sort of what you do to the children. Correct. I want to give an example of what, what I what just came into my head. So when I was observing this class, they had their circle right in the morning and mm-hmm. they went around. 
and there was a girl who you could see had some postural tone issues, right? Having a hard time sitting still, was flopping over, lost trunk tone. I mean, my brain thinks this way, right? I'm looking at it from through these lenses, okay? Postural control issues. And what I loved about the experience which you're hitting on is that the teacher asked the child to look at themselves to ask what they needed instead of, I see you need this, so I'm going to tell you what to do. Or the reverse is sit still. Yes. Don't move. Yes. Keeping your seat, stay there without the empathy of understanding what they're experiencing from a sensory motor perspective. Right. It's inherent there. So this girl who was probably three and a half, four, um, the teacher just said, you know, I think we talked about some ideas that might help you. She stood up, she walked over, she got herself a chair, she brought the chair to the circle, sat in the chair, and then the teacher said a few seconds later, and just let me know when you're ready to change your body again. So she sat there for a few minutes because the chair was giving her input, helping right. her to wake up her body to sit, regulating. The little girl raised her hand. She goes, I think I'm ready now to come back. She moved the chair back to the table and sat back down on the floor and was regular. She could hold herself up again. And that's such a great, such a great example. example. And because also it's completely non-shaming, right? Yes. It's, and yes. it's about so, her figuring out and learning what her body needs. That's right. 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 And it's so, so... This also brings me to the concept of normalization, mm-hmm. which is a super triggery word for me. Yeah. And for a lot of people. Bring it on. Right? <laughs> and that, that this is a term that's used in Montessori, right? Which, yeah. again, I think tends to be very off-putting for disability advocates yes. and, um, again, people who are sensitive to colonial issues, uh-huh. right? Okay. Um, so oh, this I, is something, and Laura, you and I have talked about this. Yes. Because, you know, you are, you understand that there's baggage associated with this word. Right. So I'm wondering if you could spend a little bit of time talking about, one, what Maria Montessori meant when right. she talked about normalization. And right. then kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I started thinking about this when you were talking about citizenship yeah. just a few minutes ago, right? So, uh, so in a, I mentioned earlier that in addition to being a physician, Maria Montessori also studied anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. So normalization is... A, an anthropological term that means becoming a contributing member of society. Mm-hmm. And so when she was, you know, uh, tasked with working with the quote unquote thro- throwaway children of Rome, she, uh, and she started to see, you know, through the preparation of the environment. And again, this took time. It was, this is, you know, the children showed this to her. She started realizing maybe we're, looking at the children in the wrong way, mm-hmm. right? And so um, it's not about me having to tame them or me having to do something to them, but it's about um, preparing an environment that allows them to, uh, again, sort of, you know, uh, be their best selves. And maybe that's what's normal right. for them as opposed to, all of this, you know, children can't control themselves at all, and children are, you know, you have to, they're right? Primitive, they're savages, right? You exactly. Save them and make them fit into exactly, exactly. Our idea of what's right. Well, and, and it's also interesting because that's a whole strain of thinking within anthropology too, mm-hmm. is trying to decolonialize anthropology and this idea of what it means to approach other cultures and not. To do so in a, that very privileged, well, you know, we're we're going to go in and, and help help you people see the light of day, right, right. right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I yeah. think that's honestly, I've seen uh, such 
amazing work from Montessorians all over the world where it, they're unbelievably respectful of you know, and very, you know, but like, what is the cultural environment? Yeah, like, it's not about it? hey, we have the answers, and right. so we're going to, you know, to this particular culture, it, this particular environment, yes. and this this individual, and how do we facilitate whatever that is, sort of blossoming and having as positive a community as possible, mm-hmm. you know? right? And one of the problems I have with educational approaches in general is this weird split in this idealization of human nature, right? That there's this idea that people are either inherently all good and kumbaya and oh, oh, if only we could, you know, all be so perfect or, you know, that humans are inherently evil and we must prevent them from their destructive impulses instead of going, wow, you know what? People can really suck at times and we all have... Mm -hmm. It's all about the gray. Right, we all have envy, we all have destructive impulses... We're all racist. Yeah. Right? yeah. But it's the it's the external structure and the rules and the laws that then allow us to contain and navigate around our worst impulses and get along with other people and um, make repairs when things get damaged. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that struck me in the Montessori environments I've been in is that these aren't little robotic children. No. They are children who are capable of being very joyful, mm-hmm. but who also, I think, do so because they are in vivo, like in an ongoing way, taught how to make repair mm-hmm. when you do wrong, when you mm-hmm. hurt somebody, mm-hmm. when you um, let your bad, quote-unquote, impulses go, and, and you know how do you then help somebody learn how to learn from that experience make the repairs and, and, and move on, mm-hmm. right? Because to apply the empathy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. this is a thing. There's a there's a book written by um, Donna Gertz, who is the founder of um, Austin Montessori School. It's called Children Who Are Not Yet Peaceful. And I had the staff read it a few, many years ago, actually, a few years ago. Um, but it, it epitomizes what I think is so great about the Montessori environment, which is that we're all people and we all have our stuff, that we got that we're working on we all have our social emotional stuff that we're working on and so what we can do is we can help each other with our stuff right. not go oh, you have that stuff right. that is so bad you know right. instead it's like really like how how can we help each other with our stuff and right. so when my children when they come home from their Montessori school and they're having conflict within the environment or whatever and you hear that there are processes that they're going through and so forth and they might even feel like they'll say sometimes I'm annoyed and I'll say but you know again it's like reminding them you know but you have your stuff too and they're like yeah that's true so how can you help him with his stuff what can you do right to you know to help um Bring out the best. Agency, right? Yes, exactly. How do you have a sense of, a agency? Sense of agency, right? And, and and this is also why, like, I, I, I don't. My kids aren't in a Montessori school. I don't, you know. So it's not my. It's very compatible with how I view things, right? Mm-hmm. But but one of the things I think about is you know so much of the anger and the paranoia and the just rage that I'm seeing within the larger American culture mm-hmm. and the amount of privilege that's there, yeah. right? That oh, yeah. This notion that there are you know, people who find the notion of, of Black Lives Matter being disruptive or this terrible thing. And I'm thinking, 
well, how do you not get this, right? But if we're not actively modeling what privilege is and understanding it is and trying to demonstrate by our own behavior that we are aware of that we have stuff that we can't see right and we're dependent on the people in our lives to sort of call us out on that in as positive a way as possible right Absolutely. I mean I, literally I have found that I cannot be friends with somebody who won't call me an a-hole when it needs to happen yeah, right like I can't Amen. trust yes <laughs> I can't can't trust. Yes. I can't trust somebody if they won't hold me accountable. That's right. Right? Yep. And, but that's not something that is just ingrained in the culture and it's not ingrained in the school environment, except for, I think, it's implicit Mm -hmm. in Montessori. Yes. And one of the things you and I have talked about, Laura, is that um, in working, in kind of scaffolding Montessori to work with kids who have disabilities and who aren't neurotypical... Um, I think one of the specific ways that happens is to start making things that are implicit in Montessori education explicit because it sort of just naturally happens, right, right, when people are unfolding. Uh But people with neurodevelopmental differences need things to be more explicit Uh a lot of times. Uh And so, um, and and we can talk, you know, another time about how do you sort of incorporate that into the rubric, but I think that that's one of the ways that very specifically Montessori education can be made directly accessible for people with disabilities and, and differences yeah. by making those things more explicit, right? Because you go into a classroom and you just feel the vibe, right? right? You just feel the vibe. But it, it's very much implicit learning, right? So how do you then make those certain things mm-hmm. explicit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, well, remember in the paper that we wrote on yeah. movement and cognition, you gave a really nice example, which I thought was so great. You may not remember. remember. Okay, so the example was, I remember, no. uh, was <laughs> that, you know, for a child who isn't neurotypical, if they're struggling with writing, for instance, uh-huh. you can say to them, it will feel like right. when, you, when you're washing a table, mm-hmm. right. right? Because then you're, you're making the explicit, you're priming, you're priming it, and then it's sort of like you're that... I don't know if this is the right way to say it necessarily, but you're kind of bringing that embodied cognition into conscious awareness in a way that they can then kind of, you know, make adjustments or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think that that's, um, so I feel, and especially having gone through this, I'm just finishing up my my doctorate program, there needs to be more interaction between the educators and Therapists, educational yeah, therapists, sure. and neuropsychologists, and yeah. I—I hey, I mean, know, you know, we'll come talk. You know, there just I'll, there I'll, needs I'll to be the of a grocery store because I think I and I and I there, you know, Montessori can really it it, it is I it is for all kinds of populations and all children. In fact, there's now a, a new movement in Montessori of. Um, using uh, bringing bringing the principles of Montessori into. Uh, populations with dementia Mm -hmm. and there's amazing work Mm -hmm. that is coming out of that where it's just basically you know improving the quality of life you know obviously it doesn't cure dementia but it improves their quality of life and you i've heard i've been at conferences just weeping because it's unbelievable um and there's also a movement um wendy fiddler is involved with that in in uh, autism and montessori and you know, I, I just think, but but I, I do think that even without a diagnosis, so this is, so, right? Uh-huh. So it's not always about 
an explicit like diagnosis necessarily, but you're still going to have some behaviors that don't appear neurotypical, right? right. I'll yeah. give you an example of my observation, okay? So that, so because this is the way I work. So in the room, there's 24 kids, right, mm-hmm. in this particular classroom. And one boy was in, so they're in their, I, I, forgive me, like they're, that three-hour block mm-hmm. of uninterrupted time. Their work cycle. Their work mm-hmm. cycle, okay. So they're in the middle of that. And there was a boy who was by himself in the in the corner, and he was doing the nesting dolls, uh, you know, like repetitive, the repetitive, right? right? Mm-hmm. Now, the teacher saw this, and the teacher said, you know, um, to the aide in the classroom as well, because there were two people, an assistant, I guess, um, can you go help this boy? He's dropping things on the floor. Now, my brain sees that as he's flooded, and he's trying to regulate himself by looking at those nesting dolls. It's something he can control. He's exploring, but the rest of he's having a hard time navigating into the middle of the work for other people. Mm. He was the only boy by himself. So in those moments, that's where getting back to like working with therapists and working with other professionals to help to train, to understand, yeah, we may not have a full diagnosis. Nobody may be diagnosed officially, right? Which we all run into right. a lot. Well, Vanessa, given the quality of intervention, (laughs) given the quality of intervention and the coercion that autistic people get, I'd much rather somebody not be diagnosed. Frankly, Mm. completely, right, right, understand, right. But having this interface between people to say, um, yeah, the the boy is engaged, right? But actually, my brain isn't seeing it the same way as an engagement, right? Right. It's a checkout. And it's not for no reason. It's because he's flooded by the other information in the room. Right. How do we scaffold it now to get him to be engaged and to get something from a peer-to-peer interaction or right. a teacher? Because if he's too flooded by his own sensory correct feelings of overwhelm, right. there's not room in that moment right. to be, you know, quote unquote, reciprocating uh-huh. interaction That's with right. other people, right? Right. And, you know, this is one of the things that I'm hoping as we come, become better educated about neurodevelopmental differences and, for example, looking at autism spectrum as a type of movement disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, that is so exciting. That, that, yeah. that there's more empathy. You know, again, I, like we talk about this, about how you know, everybody talks about wanting to teach autistic people empathy. I'm like, well, where's the empathy for autistic people? Like, what? Like, Right? Yeah. We could have a whole podcast on that oh, one. Yeah. And it yeah. would just be vitriol and I'd yeah, need I'd wine. Like yeah. yeah, we'll have to record I, I would just, I'd Later. be surly. It's so interesting to me, the whole notion that Montessori is ableist, because from my perspective, and I know Montessori would never use this word, it is the epitome of scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like that's what the whole program is. And... It doesn't even seem that difficult to make some of it explicit because it's explicit for the teachers. Mm-hmm. The teachers know that the table washing goes on to become, right, penmanship. And, I mean, you even said it's a 17-step, like, that's pretty explicit. Right. Right. So somewhere, like, that information's there, it then just becomes application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so that's... procedural learning. Yeah. By the way, mm-hmm. I mean, that's within visual right. ganglia Absolutely. research, there is a specific, it's, it's called information integration learning. Mm-hmm. And it is essentially why um, I could look at an x-ray and be like, oh, look at all the pretty grays and, you know, grays mm-hmm. and whites and blacks. And a trained radiologist will look at it and will know whether it's cancer or not. Right. Right. 
um, and may not even necessarily be able to explain how they know it. They just know it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right? It's like Blink, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, wait, that was a big wait, eye roll. Don't, big oh my God, roll. don't big talk about roll. him. Sorry. Malcolm Gladwell, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm that's serious. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah no, sorry. that's right. like, he's, he's. I'm engaging my inhibition skills right now. <laughs> have a drink. <laughs> Take a sip. That was good. That was but, good. okay, so maybe but not Malcolm Gladwell. Let's not talk yeah, yeah, about let's Malcolm not talk Gladwell, about Malcolm but the Gladwell. concept, <laughs> right, right, of just knowing something right. based on what you... Okay, got it. But I... So, uh, Jamie, I think you bring up a, a really good point. Um, getting off Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, please. Uh, is, you know, I do think that there needs to be uh, more in, in any pedagogy and in parenting... Uh, talking about making well making those implicit things explicit i think i you know it's it's like telling helping children to understand you know uh ask them about their thinking for instance yeah. right or, what or is like their their thinking brush and saying brush your teeth <sighs> right <laughs> here you go here's a toothbrush Right, without showing them how right. to do yeah, things. Yeah. Dude, I, I remember go taking my son when Cedric was, uh, he was walking at like 12 months or whatever, and I wanted to be able to walk to the park with him, like have him walk beside me. I Before we walked to the park, I took him on walks <laughs> up and down our street to show him how to walk on the sidewalk <laughs> and not run up people's driveways right, or right. not run on people's lawns but right. sh- like get, like right. give him some lessons about things right. you know but, to, but this goes back to that vertically organized brain mm-hmm. viewpoint and we will have a specific podcast talking about yeah, you the have, vertically organized yeah. brain yeah. although although we we do have a write up of that in our movement and cognition paper in volume 2 of the Montessori white papers just want to say that Available but yes through the white paper <laughs> press website we so, will include that we will include that in the show I know well you know but, but plug it more than that. Say say something about the white papers. Oh, the white papers. Oh, okay. So that um, so the white papers we write them to give parents information in little bits. They're they're fairly short, but substantive information about how what we do in Montessori correlates with research literature. Uh, not necessarily in education. Sometimes it's education research literature, although there's not necessarily a ton of great education well, research literature but and yeah. you know uh cognitive science and psychology well, and neuroscience is yes that, you know, uh, the, 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 jamie and i talk about a lot is the problem of neuromyths in education mm. yes um and actually i had a, a really nice discussion with um real social skills and michael hunsaker on twitter about you know why it's important to move away from neuromyths because you know the idea of neuro you know, learning styles. Learning styles is oh my gosh! Say. I know. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, why? Why, yeah. why using learning styles as something to guide um, education and intervention is problematic, right? And and in large part because that's just not how brains work, right? How bodies work, and so right. You know, and and granted, I might be a bit reactive, but you know, literally, my slappy hand comes up when I start hearing people talk about visual learners and auditory learners. And and actually, my my son, my older son, who's a bit of a troll, um, will will sometimes walk up to me and say, hey, mom, I'm a visual learner. (laughs) (laughs) Just to get your guts. Just to annoy you. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, actually, I have a talk on neuromyths, and I presented it a couple of years ago at a conference in Australia. And it was—I was actually kind of surprised at the reaction. It was—I got a lot of, "Well, this is really controversial," type of thing. Right. What do you mean? Yeah. And it's like—it's bad science. It's—it is—it's bad science. Of parents who think 
that. And, and, you know, parents. But I'm always frustrated with the number of professionals that recently they're like, so are they a visual learner or an auditory learner? Right. Not a thing. Not a thing. Exactly. Oh, gosh. My kid only uses 10% of his brain. So I just, no, I'm just. Well, he's ahead of me. My kids just walk around to each other saying, I would like to inquire about a small loan of $1 million. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. But but this is this the enormous thing is really it, it it drives behavior that's the problem you get you know you you believe these things right. and then you you behave based on these well, on these beliefs and that assumptions that we make about children absolutely. and what their behavior means and this is where again it, it goes into one cultural differences and where I've had people I go into classrooms and I see a white child doing something and it's interpreted one way and I see a black child doing something the exact same thing by, by the way right. and, it means, and, something and else. it means something mm-hmm. else and it's interpreted differently mm-hmm. yeah and um, and people do not realize the implicit bias they're bringing right. to the interpretation of this person's behavior and they're making it seem to be about the child when in fact it's about the person viewing the child and right putting their for sure interpretation on the behavior yeah um, Mm-hmm. And it can be grossly damaging to people. Right. And, yes. and that can happen in a Montessori school. It can happen yeah. in any kind of school because it is involving human beings. Right. And it is involving our own inherent biases and assumptions that we make based on a combination of our neurology and our right. experiences right. within whatever the cultural bath we grow up in. Right. And then that's what we think is, is normal, right? Do the fish know it's in water? Right, right, exactly, right, exactly. Um, so the thing that makes me really hopeful about about Montessori education as being a way to move move into just a different approach to education overall is the possibility of of taking a truly neurodevelopmental and and developmental approach and trying to adjust our educational standards and, and interventions to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like I said, if we can have more communication between the teachers and professionals such as yourselves, I think it really needs to become much more multidiscipline. Yes. Uh, disciplinary. It, it's, I think, and I think teachers are also, um, I think they're kind of starving for that sort of information of, okay, oh, I just need to make something explicit. That's so helpful. How do I, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to figure out, what I'd like for us to do is figure out a way to uh, get more interaction between Mm -hmm. our two communities. And in the traditional educational environment, teachers are just treated like... Like factory workers. They're just factory workers. And they're not trusted factory workers. No, That's the other they're thing. Just, they're just expected to shove content into kids so they can spit it back out on standardized tests. Well, you know, but but Deb, to be fair, Common Core, you know, they're trying to get them to think in a little oh, more. Right? <laughs> you said Common Core. After that, all I heard was wah, 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 wah. wah. The number of people show up in my office going, and we are a hot mess because of common core. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, people pulled their children out of schools because of common core. The parents as well are fluttered by it, too. They're just a mess about it. 
Yeah. Because again, it's it's completely it's disembodied education. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. This is yeah. the thing that always drives me crazy. Disembodied education and it's all the reforms that occur, they're always stuffing them into the same framework. And they're yeah. always created by business people. Like I have nothing against business people, but what's disembodied education? Oh, what's oh, oh, oh good sorry. Question. Right. Yeah. So, this, <laughs> so whenever I think of disembodied education, actually, I think of um, Futurama and all the heads in the jars. Uh-huh. Um but but essentially it is it's decontextualized education and it's it's separating um, content from process. Yes. yes. Right. Right. Yes. So that there are just these random fact bites mm-hmm. that you're supposed to learn just and spit out. Memorize them mm-hmm. without the shunt back. Out. Right. I mean, I'm a big fan of memorization. I think you know being able to automatize is super important. Being able to make something automatic and being able to do it without thinking is valuable. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and so disembodied education essentially it fits into that dualism, that mind-body dualism yep. that that your brain and your body aren't connected. Right. And, and we're all focused just on the brain. Right. And it's... It, we're and, just but the cortex in, that's right. in particular. It's cortical. That's it's right. frontal right. lobes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's your frontal all, lobes. It's all, all your frontal lobes. Decision yes. making. That's all yeah. that we're doing right now. Right. That's it. Or comprehension. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of, again, one of the things that I'm so interested in with current the way current research is going is you know in the looking at network mm-hmm. modalities mm-hmm. and looking more in large brain networks and how they interact mm-hmm. with each other and as opposed to this is the part of the brain that does this right 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 exactly so right and so can we just say that the executive functions are not in your prefrontal cortex well it's useful to have a prefrontal it's cortex useful to have it function, but that's not but where they they don't they don't reside there. Yeah, they don't reside not, there. That's not where they. <laughs> that's right. not where they live. Mm-hmm. A lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of coding of behavior. But that's what we're and, taught. Yeah. In and, school. And again, the prefrontal cortex <laughs> yeah. is very important for that, right? But yeah. it's also connected deeply yeah. to the rest of the brain. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Our which is, structures. Yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, which is also deeply connected to body. And right. Uh huh. Spinal cord and uh-huh. nervous system. Um. And, and so I just think if we were educating people from the bottom up about, literally about child development, neurodevelopment, you know, all, all of us start with training about what typical people who are already adults do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even when we're being taught education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not taught about how brains and bodies develop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So no. if it, we started doing that, but we'd have to actually believe in education and believe in evolution as a real thing and not just a quote unquote theory. Right. That that is oh, a fundamental piece of theory. I know. It's because you know. <laughs> well, it's it's like that video that you showed me of, of Daniel Wolport. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you yeah, know, I that, I mean, it. that is, know, you so know, great. I... That's why I show it so often when I give talks. Yeah, really I started incorporating nice... it in my talks, too, to yeah. get them to to understand that their uh, flip needs to occur. So, I mean, I, I now have it, like, on fast, you know, bookmark on my computer, because I show it when I'm talking about things that have nothing to do with neurodevelopment, because you mm. can see a class that's been sitting, listening to you all day long. Like, I have this image of them starting to digest their brain. Because the longer they sit, yes, they're, they're sitting still. That's right. Into the chair, yes. right? And like right. you can see the lights going on. Yes. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh my god, everybody, get up and walk around your tables. Yes. Yeah. And they're like, why'd you make us do that? And then I show them. I'm like, this is why. Right. Yes, because you're born to move. Right. Like, yeah. Exactly. Move. Because move. Your brains are starting to digest. Yeah. Like, I'm kidding, but you—that's how you look sitting out there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
And so the, the notion that we take six-year-olds and expect them to sit still all day. Oh. No, no, but well, Jamie, Jamie, to be fair, yeah. we are now putting um, stationary bikes under their desks in some schools oh, that, okay. so that they yeah. can move. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's something. <laughs> I just don't I even, I I just don't even know what to say. Like, oh, it's wow. just, I can't. <laughs> and I, I showed a picture of that at a talk, and then somebody else uh saw an article about it and said, oh, this is really a thing. And I was like, oh, I didn't make this up. This is, they're trying, but they still don't still, get it. But, it. but again, it's because it's decontextualized. Well, it's right? decontextualized, because exactly. is the understanding of why movement is important, right? Well, it, everybody's movement, movement is going to be different as yes, well. The exactly. needs of those yes, movements are different. Yes. That little girl needing a chair to help her. That wouldn't work for other people. Right. right. The stationary one bike isn't going to work for everybody, right. but they look at it in terms of exercise. Right. They don't look at it in terms of purposeful movement. Purposeful movement. <laughs> right. No. And again, how to scaffold. So right. again, if somebody has right. a physical disability uh-huh. and they have something that's impeding their movement, how do you give them supports that make the environment accessible for them right. so that they can then continue to engage in the, the best ways that they can engage? Mm-hmm. So... Um, so for me, why I like a sensory motor approach so much also is that you then incorporate, you can think about the intersection of you know, physical disabilities that someone has and how do you help them access that. And then you can also think of cognitive disabilities mm-hmm. and you know, presuming confidence is so important in that regard because if somebody has communication difficulties, for example, what scaffolding is needed to make the environment and the material accessible for mm-hmm. that person. Right, right, right. Um, instead of saying, well, you know, I'm a BCBA and I'm yeah. trained or yeah. I'm floor time trained and this is what the book tells me to do with you. Right? Yeah. As opposed to taking a background training and then very specifically adapting it to the needs of that individual and actually listening to the individual about what, what they might yeah. perhaps need. That's yeah. Right. Can we also just really briefly touch on something? Because can we, is there, are there any assessments out that can assess executive functions through movement as opposed to like, do this, here's an iPad app and then you're going to do this little task and then you're going to swipe? Of course. So people have what, to be trained to know how to do it because you have to be trained to, to know what movements are. And right. So, so purely computerized assessment is not useful in my opinion. I, I use computerized assessments as part of, of what I do, but but you know, we'll, we'll reconvene, actually, and we will have a discussion. We will have a specific episode on executive function. Yeah, I think we should do okay, that. Because it is um, it is a term that, that is misused a lot, right? Um, and there are lots of different ways to understand what executive function is. I define executive function as an individual's ability to independently navigate their environment yeah. and everything that goes into that. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Correct. So, um, But so, we should talk about that because I'd love to figure out how we can do some assessment in Montessori that is really more fitting with our approach, oh, with our yeah. sensory motor approach. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and it's so, absolutely possible, but I, can't, I find it hard to imagine that somebody who is a Montessori person would think it'd be a good idea to use computerized assessment as a means of measuring yeah. executive function. Well, the problem is we, we have very little research in right. Montessori. And so, you know, part of what the call has been, at least since I've been part of the community for, I don't know, 10 years or something, is 
you know, we need research. And so there's all these proposals of like bringing these iPads in and having the kids, you know, do these things to measure their executive functions. But I'm just, you know, my concern is that it, it doesn't fit with who we are. It doesn't fit with what we well, do. And we're kind, it's like we're trying of to kind of function that can be measured that way. But, but part, see, part of my concern about trying to move toward a purely um, computer generated way of assessment is that it is it, it's not embodied. Right. It right. is not, it's not grounded enough in movement. And right. that's why I'm not really fond of things like luminosity or even, um, whatchamacallit, um, what's that working memory training? The end back game thing? No. The, the, um, cogmed? Cogmed. Oh, Cogmed, yeah. That, that it, you know, you can train a skill, any specific skill, by just doing it repetitively over uh, and over and over right. again. And you're skill so whether it's going to generalize or not exactly question and that's why i tend to you know we can talk about video games in this regard too because there are certain kinds of games you can play that are going to be more likely to generalize yeah right Mm -hmm. um so that's for another episode yeah that i was just gonna say yeah this is for another episode but i would definitely throw in gate analysis (laughs) yes for sure absolutely very strong gate analysis will break down some executive function issues. Yeah. Oh, or, really? Sure. Okay, so that's, yeah. Indeed. Absolutely. Just have people walk and have a trained person who knows how to analyze the, the angles of flexion and extension and all of that, and you'll, yeah. you'll be able to right. determine. Are arms working with the legs? Right, because oftentimes one arm will swing more than the other. You can then... Are you posturing with yeah. one of the arms? Right. Oh, completely. Right. Yeah. And that, if there's yeah. a flexion in the arms, then the way my brain goes is that we're going to have some attention difficulties. Right. Yeah. Oh, see, that's interesting. See, it'd be interesting to share that. I mean, I know that they teachers would not be able to say what uh, the difficulties would be, but if they can notice something in the gate, right? Teachers do notice this, teachers, and teachers they do? stop me okay. all the time, and they'll say, um, "Can you uh, at, at preschools, okay, especially right. almost every day, I have a teacher come up to me and say." Uh, can you know? I know I can't talk to the parents about this, but can you watch this kid for a second? Something's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know. And they know. They yeah, just don't that's know. What they notice. They don't have. They know, but they it. don't know yeah. what it means. Yeah. Right. right. And and this particular one I'm thinking of is uh, on one side there was a tiptoe, right? The other right. side didn't have a tiptoe, but one side did. Right. 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 And they were like, "There's something strange about how yeah. they're walking." Yeah. I've, I mean, I've had children who have no control over their body who yeah. walk like they're drunk. Yeah. Oh yeah, like they just like they're, they're walking like, and then and, and teachers notice they just don't have the words to describe it. They do, right. and it's yeah. it's, it's yeah. different. It's strange. But I think also for parents, it would be interesting for them. So it'd be easier to get children evaluated if you also because they'll think, oh, they'll grow out of it. They think it's just movement. Do you see what right. I'm saying? Right. As opposed to seeing it connected possibly right. to yeah. later cognitions. Yeah. So if we can kind of get everybody on board with understanding that, then things could be identified. Early, yeah. you know, which would be great. When, when um, Len and I co-authored that book back in two thousand six or two thousand seven, that nobody read or applied. Well, we have to figure out a way to get that message out. Even we you know, will. yeah, we will. We're that's what so, that's what we're doing yeah. right now, right? Yes. Like that's <laughs> before we leave this topic. Yes, this and we got to stop because we're at our hour mark and we're trying to be. You know, and I got yeah. brunch. And I'm hungry. Yeah. But I have, I have one last question for Laura. Because it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Okay. So what are the resources parents can turn to to help them identify a good Montessori versus someone who just threw the word on the wall? Right, okay. Are there good websites they can check out or, you know, other than white paper press? Yeah. Which is a good resource. But how does a parent know? 
That is a very complex question. I think actually the National Center for Monitoring the Public Sector is putting together, um, I would check out their website. It's possible that they have a list of things to kind of look for when you're going and observing or questions that you can ask. Um, It's it, I, I hope I'm right about that, but I would check with them first because that is, that's a constant, yeah, that's a constant question. Right. You're going to mm-hmm. give us a list of the, all of the websites and, and research and literature that you want to recommend and we'll put it in the show notes. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. This is this fun. Was fun. Was, I know. Thanks for coming. So you will come on again and you will be a recurring guest. Oh, I would love that. You no, know, because also you're just. I know, well, I love, um, I could talk to you guys all day, so. No, it's a problem. <laughs> it is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, so, Laura, why don't you tell us how people can get a hold of you? Because Laura is on Twitter. Oh, I am. Yeah, everybody's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> but Laura doesn't play video games, so you guys are It's true. Oh, I don't play video I'm games. I'm trying. It's a hot mess. So. <laughs> Wait, I didn't know I needed a mouse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just right. had a good visual. Like, like, we have like, get, somebody needs a video yes. camera of my face while I'm trying to figure this thing out. And I mean, so this, is, I, I so this isn't even a game. She bought Firewatch, okay, which I, is this isn't even what a we game? would call sort of oh, a walking word. simulator, which is, it's great. Like, I walking adore simulator? It. It's, a, okay. Right? No. Like, you don't shoot stuff. You don't shoot stuff for anything. You just go around and look at things, and it's a story. There are walkie-talkies involved. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Yeah, I find video games very stressful. I find games in general stressful. Have you ever had those friends who, like, want to do, like, let's let's have a, you know, night together, and we do game night. I'm, like, lying on the floor, you know, oh, God, this is so stressful. I can't handle it. I just can't handle it. We just got... Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, which is this really cool mystery game where you solve mysteries. Oh, okay. Um, it was out of print for a really long time. So you can come over and play Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Okay. Well, I'm going to need copious amounts of wine. Really, is yeah. that... <laughs> you play the games with. Yeah, yeah. well. Don't well, because some people get, like, super watch. competitive, and I just can't... <laughs> Seriously. Oh my god, it's like the literally the easiest game. You know what? This is like pong of games. But it's really great game. But it's just like the story is the thing. You want to know the last game I played? Yes, pong. Pong. Tetris. Hey, Tetris okay. rules. I love Tetris. Tetris, Tetris. Tetris is used for but I used it in the original format. So you need to come over yeah. and play Firewatch on the PS4 because it's yeah, on the Mac. Easier. It's a it's a drive you crazy. it's a hot trash fire on the Mac. It is Firewatch. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. Sorry, I, I, sorry Sean. It sorry. is beautiful. Yeah. It's a yeah. beautiful. Like beautiful anybody at Campo Santo has time to listen it to our podcast. It is my my yeah. It is something. So, anyways, the let's get back to the Twitter situation. Oh, that's that right. So, Laura, what's your what's your handle? Them, not me. So, it's. You know what? I hardly ever use it. It's oh, it's L Floor Shaw. L F L O. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and them also on uh, on Facebook. I know you guys are on Facebook. Yeah, I know because that's a whole other conversation. I know, I know. But uh, yeah. Wow, that and, went south. <laughs> <laughs> you said Facebook, and I said Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> I know, right? Those two things don't set. <laughs> so you guys are in the naughty corner. Uh, I know, right? That's I'm always in the naughty corner. That side of the table. Yeah. Well, my nickname was, was given to be Scylla. So. Oh, yeah. Scylla, go. yeah. What is Scylla for? What Short is Scylla? Priscilla. Short for Priscilla. 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 <laughs> oh, my God. I yeah. just realized that. Yeah. 
That's so, okay. so we should actually tell this story really quick before we leave that, that we, the, the four of us went together to SFN, the Society for Neuroscience Conference this year. We had way I, too much fun. And, and hygiene. Oh, we didn't yeah, attend the conference, but we had way too I much fun. <laughs> oh, I intended to go. Well, yeah, you did. Yes. But, yeah, um, went. Well, you went to the part of it. I didn't go. We went <laughs> to okay. SFN banter, banter, by the way, which right. props to, to Dr. Becca for making that happen. Um, we helped out with the, if you guys went to SFN banter and you saw the cool floaty balloons, those we were from Helena and we went and got the. I think, yeah. Because I couldn't tolerate the idea of those balloons not having helium in them. Yeah. Well, we made it happen. We yeah. did. So in, in that course, um, we spent some time hanging out with, with Walt, whose name isn't really Walt. Walt it's yeah. um, Michael Markey from F1000, and, and he gave us all nicknames. <laughs> That's right. And they stuck. And, and they, they have. Stuck. They have so stuck. Now we, now we use them. So so Laura is Babs. Mm-hmm. And you're Scylla. I'm Scylla. Peggy is um, Megs. Megs. Megs, yep. And Jamie is Dottie. 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 <laughs> They're pretty great. They, they are. are. Yeah. I you think know, they kind of, they fit. Given that you've never met us before, yeah, he, I think, hit it. I think yep. it was pretty pretty nicely done. Mm-hmm. So um, so thanks all for hanging hanging in with us, and, and we hope that if you didn't know about Montessori before, that you are now curious to learn more yes. about Montessori. Learn more. Um, and if you did know about Montessori before, that you are um, motivated to learn even more. It's always um, learning. Yes. Yep. So thanks That's for joining fun. us, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yeah.